going on, people, and welcome to this week's episode of But I Digress. As always, I'm your host, Warren, and we're ready for episode five. Today on the podcast, we're going to talk about two shows that I saw since we last spoke. I saw one on Friday and then one on yesterday, which was Tuesday. We're going to talk about Cam Newton Flying Coach, and we're going to talk about a new mobile phone game that you're hoping that your doctors are playing. But before we get into that, let's get started with today in history. Going all the way back to 1498, we had the invention of the toothbrush in China, where they used boar bristles. Also in the world of inventions in 1894, Carl Benz, that last name should sound pretty familiar, of Germany received the patent for the gasoline-driven auto, automobile, but the patent actually says auto on it. In 1945, we had the UN Charter signed by 50 nations in a meeting in San Francisco. That charter later came into force on October 24th, 1945, sparking the beginning of the UN, and they actually had their first official meeting in January of the next year. But today in 1945 is when that first charter, also kind of like a constitution of sorts for the UN, was signed by 50 nations. And what we're actually going to get into a little bit today is today in 1997, the first Harry Potter novel, Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, was published in the UK. Three years later, the US version, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, would be released. Now, this is pretty monumental in pop culture, especially for people ages probably 23, 24 through about 40 on the high end, because... It was the beginning of the Harry Potter series, which is arguably one of the most popular book series and most popular movie series ever created. So we had seven books, and those seven books were turned into eight movies. The final book, being very long, was split into two movies. Um, Those movies spanned 2011 to 2001, sorry, 2001 to 2011, uh, grossing a total of $2.39 billion, which is a full $1.03 billion more than the next highest-grossing movie series based on a book, which would be Twilight. What's interesting is this was also a time when we were starting to establish that sequels weren't afterthoughts, but actually planned. Uh, Previously, in a lot of movies, you would have a movie come out, and then it would get a great reception, and then they would go, okay, let's make another one. Whereas in this one, the plan was, because there was a series of books, to do the entire series of books. Uh, Actually, a year later, you had the first Spider-Man come out, which kind of followed the old model where this movie had a really good reception, let's make a second one, but when they made the second one, they also had thoughts of making the third one. So... The Harry Potter movie series had a lot of influence on how we view movies today. And now, after its success of eight movies, we have things like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, where you have 20 movies and counting uh, that have one overarching story with other small stories uh, sprinkled in there. We have DC Comics trying to do the same thing. You've had uh, many other young adult novels turned into movie series, as I said, Twilight. Uh, Maze Runner, Divergent, The Hunger Games, the list goes on. So J.K. Rowling releasing this book in 1997 and then allowing the books to be made into movies has really kind of changed the entertainment landscape. 
and allowed for things that are really cool and for us to be able to see our characters come to life. These characters that we've imagined what they look like and what they sound like and pictured it in our mind, somebody was actually able to make that a reality. And it was just really cool. So thanks, JK, for really influencing a lot of people's childhoods. Our first topic for today, um, we're actually going to review two shows, and so it's going to be two separate topics, but we're going to review two shows for the first half of the podcast. I saw two very, very different shows, one on Friday, like I said, and one uh, last night, which was Tuesday. And so we're going to start with the one that I saw on Friday, which was called Double Consciousness. And it was a small sketch comedy show that I saw in the Hyde Park neighborhood of Chicago, which for those of you who are unfamiliar with Chicago, it is on the south side. If you know where the University of Chicago is, it is in that area. So you have a lot of um, students in that area. It's also a fairly affluent African-American neighborhood over there. Hyde Park is and then northern Kenwood is as well. Uh, It's very near the lake. So. It's a pretty good area to be in, especially when you have a university nearby. You know that you have some pretty unique art happening. And so we went to this sketch comedy club, and they do all kinds of sketch comedy. And they were running the show uh, for the month of June, and it was just on Friday. So there was only four shows, but it was very, very well written. And so I'm going to read what the info is online for the show, and then we'll get into my experience. So the info online says, quote, uncover the mystery of black of the black American experience, double consciousness, a guide to being black in America, a witty sketch comedy review that invites you to the cookout through the lens of the black perspective. You are guaranteed to laugh out loud, reminisce and possibly learn a thing or three. So this show was very interesting. Sketch comedy is not something that I've ever seen live. I have seen improv live. I've seen stand up. Um, Obviously, I've seen plays and musicals and things of that nature, but I've never seen sketch comedy done live. So it was very interesting to see how these transitions work when it's like you don't have TV and you don't have like people talking in between and commercials and things like that. And so there was a group of five actors in total. You had two African-American women, one African-American man, one white woman and one white male. And you might think it's weird that a white woman and a white male were acting in a sketch comedy show about black culture. But if you really think about it, you can't truly have black culture without examining how white people are influenced by it and have influenced it over the years. So the show was really interesting. It was absolutely hilarious. And there were tons of references uh, that most of us grew up with. There was one sketch where... The mother was driving in the car and picking up the daughter from school and the daughter got in the car and the first thing she said was, oh, my God, you smell like outside, which those of us who grew up with black parents have heard that before and didn't really understood what it meant until you got to be an adult. And then you smelled a kid who came back, who came inside from outside. So it was filled with little childhood nuggets like that where you were able to relive things from your childhood uh, fond memories and things of that nature. Obviously, you had to have some church humor. So they had a church who was trying to reach the youth and they brought in a rapper who wasn't necessarily a Christmas, a Christian rapper, um, but he had a Christian rapping name, Lil Hallelujah. And so he had these really interesting songs where... He would talk about 
things that we would consider negative, maybe killing people, drug dealing and things like that. But he would say things like you're going to meet the Lord and you're going to see the angels in heaven. And so, like, obviously references to killing people, but also like using church references for that. And so the church was like, yeah, this is going to be great kind of mocking that sometimes adults hear one thing and don't really or later adults rather hear one thing in music and don't really understand what the actual meaning is because they are not privy to the knowledge of what the current slang means and so on and so forth. So there are a lot of things like that. But one of the things that I found the most interesting about the show was not so much the show as much as the audience. So as I said earlier, Hyde Park is a little bit more of an affluent neighborhood and you have a really good university over there. And with it being a more affluent African-American neighborhood, you would expect that at a show like this, you would have college-age students who haven't quite left home for the summer, left to go home for the summer, uh, maybe some younger professional black people. And with there being a university and a hospital over there, obviously you're going to have people of all races who live over there because they're living close to their job, but the majority of the neighborhood is African-American. And the the crowd was probably 30 to 35% white, um, which was really awesome, actually, because as an African-American and someone who understands that a lot of the disconnect that we have with people of other races is that we have been told our whole lives to be quiet about politics, be quiet about religion and be quiet about differences, that we haven't learned to talk about those things. And so what entertainment has been able to do for black people is introduce our culture and also our problems and the, our dealings and the issues that we go through every day through entertainment, generally comedically, so that it's softer and easier for people to take because it's really difficult to show people things like the movie Detroit and the Central Park Five movie that we talked about and have them want to watch those things because they invoke such negative feelings. So, although we shouldn't have to make it comedic because people should just want to listen to our experiences because you should be interested in other people's experiences because they're different than your own, it's good and smart that we found a way to have those same conversations in a way that tends to be more receptive to people who are not seeking it out. People who are seeking to understand other people will put themselves through the emotional hardship that is watching movies like Detroit, 12 Years a Slave, Glory, things like that. There are other people, however, who are not, or at least don't feel like they're equipped to handle the full brunt of that emotion. And so using things like Blackish as a television show and this sketch comedy show to introduce the fun things about black culture the fun things about black people while not ignoring the issues and the hardships that we go through. It's really, really smart. And so I appreciated that these people who for all intents and purposes were amateurs were able to do this so smartly and so funnily and in a way that was very easy to understand. And if you were African-American to relate to, and if you were not African-American to learn and I appreciated that they put the part in there about possibly learn a thing or three because there are very few black people who are in that room who are learning anything about our culture in that situation. But they opened it up in the description of the show for people who were not African-American. The invitation of come learn something about black culture. And they used black tropes in the 
uh, description of the show saying like you're invited to the cookout, which has been a social media pop culture phrase that's been used for the past few years more so than it had been previously. And so I appreciated what they were able to do on a very small stage with a small audience. It was still really fun and actually very powerful because there was the second to last sketch. And I'm glad that it was the second to last sketch and not the last sketch where instead of doing an actual sketch, they had, um, there are actually three black women now that I'm recounting it. They had the three black women do a spoken word together that was incredibly powerful but there was nothing funny in it at all it was absolutely straight to the point using poetry to talk about the issues that black people are dealing with and the thoughts that go through our minds and things that we shouldn't have to deal with and dehumanization and so on and so forth and then they had the last sketch which added some levity so that you were leaving on a positive note but they weren't going to let you escape the room without feeling the weight that comes with being a part of black culture. And while black culture is awesome and it is rich and it is amazing, there are still parts of it, maybe not parts of black culture per se, but parts of being black that are very heavy on a day-to-day basis. And if you're going to watch this show that is supposed to give you a peek into the world that is black culture, you can't do that without also talking about the negative things that go along with it. So the show is really interesting. Um, If you happen to listen to this before Friday, June 28th, uh, if you just Google Double Consciousness Hyde Park, you'll be able to find the show. You would think it was $15, if I remember correctly, so it was really cheap. So again, if you hear this before June 28th and you want to check it out, please do. It was really, really funny. Um, And if you ever see things like this and you are a white person, don't feel nervous or any kind of way about going to the show even though you know the show is going to be mostly black um it's still an interesting way for you to go in and learn about black culture kind of what we talked about with the central park five where if you don't know the story or even if you do know the story and you're a white person you should watch it because it's a way for you to understand the people around you who aren't talked about as much we know that our american history is almost exclusively white history. And so that was a way for people to be able to see some of that uh, in the same way that black culture has a certain way that it is portrayed in media. And if you're not in it, you don't see what it actually is. This is a way for you to actually kind of get an appreciation for that. So next we have the, I'm going to call it a musical because that's what they actually called it. Um, But we'll get into why I'm, a little bit on the fence about that as a descriptor, Uh, but it's called Six the Musical, and the basic story is Henry VIII was married six times, and it's about his wives, and so just like we did with Double Consciousness, I'm going to give you the little blurb on the website where they tell you what the show is about. So this one says, The wives of Henry VIII join forces for an electrifying pop concert spectacle, shining a spotlight on these six women as never before. The queens take the mic to reclaim their identities out of the shadow of their infamous spouse, who's King Henry VIII, obviously, remixing 500 years of historical heartbreak into a power-packed celebration of 21st century female empowerment. Now, a lot of men would hear pop, concert, female empowerment and go, nah, I'm out. But listen to the review before you make that decision. So I had never heard of the show 
uh, but a friend of mine who lives in New York and is a director, uh, a theater director, uh, was in town for something unrelated and said, hey, I'm going to see this musical you should come with me. It's going to be really cool. And I was like, sure, I'm, I'm in. Like, I'm not doing anything. It's a Tuesday night, and I'm always interested in theater. Theater's really cool, especially from my friend who works in theater. So she, like, we planned this about a month ago. I sometimes, when I'm going to see, like, a play or something, like to go in cold so I don't have any preconceived notions. I don't want to read any reviews. I don't want anybody to tell me about it. I just go in cold. So I was expecting a musical when... I at least looked up what it was and went, oh, okay, it's a Six Wives of Henry VIII, music-based, probably, like, some odes to Hamilton, like, historical acting. Cool. Awesome. It was not that at all. What it was, basically, is it was only 80 minutes. It was very short. But it was basically a concert. You had these six women, a four-piece ensemble band with a bass, a bass guitar, a guitar, an um, electric guitar, a drum set, and a keyboard. Like, that was all of the music. Obviously, we also had a sound mixer. Um, and then you had these six women who were all portraying... Uh, they were portraying each of the six wives of Henry VIII. But instead of it being a play where they were acting and showing scenes from their lives, what they did was they sang an opening song together, and then each of the six wives sing a song about their experience before, during, and for some of them after uh, the marriage, their marriage with Henry. And so it was really interesting because what the creators did is for each of the wives, they picked a different like pop style female vocalist to style the song after. And so part of the fun of it was trying to figure out Okay, so this queen is this singer, this queen is this singer, this queen is kind of a combination of these two singers. And so that was part of the fun. And so I'm not going to go through and tell you who the singers were, because you may go see it and I don't want to take the fun away. But if you don't think you're going to see it, you can just ask me personally and I'll tell you. But it was interesting because it kept the show kind of unpredictable because you weren't able to look at them and know, okay, they're going to sing like this person or they're going to sing like this person. And so you had these six distinctive queens with these six distinctive styles of song with these six very distinctive stories. And like I said, it was only 80 minutes and the singing was phenomenal. All six women were great. They really played into the character. Uh, The casting director did a really good job of matching the singer's vocalization to the style of song that they were supposed to be singing. The costume and makeup artist did a good job of matching their costumes to either particular people who they were modeling the singing after or a particular type of pop or era of pop um, where the genre of the song that they were singing came from. Like Everything was really well put together and the show was absolutely phenomenal. What I thought about from a larger perspective is two things. Number one, of these six queens, all six of them were European white. And in the show, we had 
three African-American women, one Asian woman, and then two white women who are playing them. So this is something reminiscent of Hamilton, where the original cast of Hamilton, Lin-Manuel Miranda, casted exclusively minorities for the main speaking slash singing roles. And the only white person in the show was the guy who was playing the King of England. And so it's interesting that we've reached a point where we're kind of reverse whitewashing, for lack of a better term. Um, I talked about whitewashing when I talked about the Aladdin pod, talked about the Aladdin movie, where Hollywood had this thing where they liked to only use white people in movies and they would use makeup to make white people look like they were other races. And in some movies, they didn't even try. Everybody was just white. Um, and so now we have this trend, in, at least in theater, of having minorities play white characters, understanding that if you're playing a historical figure, especially in something like a play, where mostly you're worried about telling the story and not necessarily re-dramatizing what happened, if you have a person who can inhabit the character that they're playing, it doesn't actually matter what that person looks like. Now, I understand that in movies, when we're trying to make it look like we're actually in that era, we want the person to not only be the same race, but actually kind of resemble that person, so you feel like you were there. But I feel like plays is a space where we're more so just trying to tell the story. And it's not about making you feel like you're in that time period or in that moment, but rather we want you to hear and see the story and understand what happened. And so I appreciate that creators in live theater are taking the liberties of casting whoever is going to fit the role, regardless of what they look like, especially when it comes to historical figures. So that was the first thing I thought about. The second thing I thought about was this is another theatrical event where we are telling history in a way that people are going to want to see and listen to and understand. So as somebody who works in education, when I talk to students, uh, one of the most common least favorite subjects of students is history because they all say it's boring. And I can say that for me growing up and until I was in my mid-20s, I agreed with them that history was the most boring subject. But what I figured out later in life wasn't was that it wasn't that history was boring. It was the way that it was being taught to us. I remember a song where they tried to get us to understand the importance of history, where the words literally said social studies, social studies, more than learning names and faces, more than learning dates and places. But so often in our educational curriculum, we're taught history as names, faces, dates, and places. And they tell us these things are important, but the curriculum often doesn't tie them back into how this affects us today, which is how you have people remember things and how things are relevant to people is what does this have to do with what's going on right now? And so if we're not going to do that, the other way to teach it is in a way that is fun and exciting. And the creators of Schoolhouse Rock figured this out. They had so many videos and they were only two minutes long where they had cartoon drawings and catchy songs about history, about math, about science. And those of us who watch those remember those lessons. The only reason that I really know how the heart works, at least initially, is from 
the Schoolhouse Rock video that talks about the circulatory system. The first time that I heard about the nervous system was a Schoolhouse Rock video. I learned the preamble to the Constitution from the Schoolhouse Rock video. Ironically, so did my mother. And we're talking two generations of people. And the only reason that either of us can quote the preamble to the Constitution, which for all intents and purposes is a useless skill unless you're at a trivia night and it comes up. But the point is useless bit of historical information because neither of us are historians we have it because of schoolhouse rock which took this piece of paper that had this really long thing written on it made it into a song and now we remember it and they didn't actually change the words of the preamble to make it rhyme so that it was catchy they literally just put a tune behind it behind it and read it rhythmically and Hamilton, and now Six, and I'm sure there are other plays, are taking bits of history that people have talked about over and over again and changing the way that they're perceived by presenting them differently. It's not like they're taking these really common stories and telling us these really common stories over again, because we know the common stories, we hear them all the time, but they're taking the history that we have been told maybe once or twice that is very interesting and telling it in a different way. Uh, at the end of the musical, the wives talked about, and this isn't a spoiler, um, because you could have figured this out. The wives talked about how they are viewed as the six wives of King Henry VIII. And without King Henry VIII, they probably would not be remembered. Which, like the first words of the description of the show say, the wives of Henry VIII. So that's absolutely true. Alexander Hamilton was one of the founding fathers. And we all know his name if you mention Founding Fathers, but he's not necessarily the one that gets talked about as much. We talk about George Washington more. We talk about Thomas Jefferson more. We talk about John Adams more. And so these are people who we already knew who are being presented to us in a different light and through entertainment. And if we try to adopt these kinds of practices in curriculum, kids would be significantly more interested in history which is important because the thing that we've all been told in our history classes was if you don't know your history, you're doomed to repeat it. And not only that, but there are also lots of things to be learned in how things were handled in history. And if you can track history through time up until now, you can see how things changed. And it also can kind of provide a predictor for how things are going to continue to change. But just having that knowledge and actually having it, not memorizing it, but having it in a way that you understand and actually remember and recall and not can just repeat, but can have a discussion about is something that's really important. And it's a skill a lot of people lack because people just tend not to have a natural interest in history because of the way it's presented to us from the time that we are young. So it would be really nice to see more plays like this because history is full of stories that are worth telling without people having to come up with original ideas, number one. But number two, more outlets that fall somewhere between Schoolhouse Rock, which is for very small children, and plays like this in Hamilton, which are for later teens, early adults, and beyond, and really try to capture that like 9, 10 to like 15 group where that is where you make a lot of the decisions about what you care about educationally and really try to 
capture that group and have them understand a that history is important b why it's important and then see the things about it that are important the things that have happened that you really should know especially if you want to go into this field you should know the history of this if you want to go into this field you should know the history of this if you come from this particular background this is a history that you absolutely deserve to know that may be kind of hidden from you so i'm hoping that i see more shows like this um six the musical is only going to be in chicago until august 4th uh it's playing at navy pier at the shakespeare theater and the chairs are actually really cheap the like front row tickets for weekdays are like 58 bucks and then i think it's like 70 dollars for weekends and obviously you can get it cheaper if you don't want to sit that close so if you have some time go see it it's playing every day but monday uh it's Really, really awesome. And if you have time to go see Double Consciousness, see that too. The next thing we're going to talk about is Cam Newton on a plane. So those of, for those of you who don't watch sports or know who Cam Newton is, Cam Newton is the quarterback of the Carolina Panthers in the NFL. Uh, he's pretty successful. He is... Also very into fashion, which has to do uh, with this story. And for the sake of this story, it is important to know that he's somewhere between 6'5 and 6'6 and probably like 245 to 260 pounds. He's a very large man. And this video recently surfaced of Cam Newton in all his crazy fashion glory, as we've come to expect, on a plane talking to a gentleman. And... Eventually, he offers the gentleman $1,500 to change seats with him because what ended up happening is Cam Newton was on a plane flying coach at 6'5", 250 pounds and wanted more legroom. Before we get into what actually happened, here's the background. So Cam Newton was flying to Men's Fashion Week in France, and with Men's Fashion Week followed by another Fashion Week happening and the World Cup happening in France at the same time, flights were extremely full. He missed his direct flight from Charlotte to France. I said he played for the Carolina Panthers, so he lives in Carolina. Uh, So he had business class on that flight. He missed it. And he was forced to redirect and fly through Dallas to get to France, which from Carolina is crazy. But those of us who fly regularly know that airline connections can be really weird and nonsensical sometimes. So he's forced to fly through through Dallas to France, and the only seat available was a coach seat. So it was either wait even longer or just take the coach seat. So I'm sure he figured, I'm Cam Newton. If I get on this coach flight, I can probably find somebody to switch with me. So he gets on the plane. It's a 10-hour flight from Dallas to France. And he offers this man $1,500. And surprisingly, the man says no. Now, there are a couple interesting things about this story. Number one, I think it was super cool of the dude to be like, $1,500 is great, but this is a 10-hour flight. I want the legroom. Also, the fact that... Cam Newton picked 1500 bucks. Like the question is how did how does he decide like oh I'm going to offer this guy this amount of money? Cuz based on the video it doesn't look like there was a negotiation where he said like 500 bucks and the guy said no and then he upped it. It looks like he just straight up offered him $1500 and guy said no. So also interesting how did Cam pick his amount? And then also 
he didn't offer him any more. So how did he decide that 1500 bucks was the most he was going to offer? I mean, we're talking about a man who makes $20 million, from his, $20 million a year from his NFL contract alone. That doesn't include the numerous endorsements that he has. So it was the whole thing is really interesting, and it brings up a lot of questions. So we asked a few of them. My other questions that I have is for you all. If somebody says, hey, switch seats with me, 1500 bucks, are you going to do it? I know people like my sister and my mom who are short and maybe won't care about the legroom as much might take the money. Somebody like my dad, who has any problems from being in the military, might have a different equation for himself for how much that legroom is worth. Maybe he does have a price, but $1,500 isn't it. When I was reading... The USA Today article about it, the author also mentioned maybe not $1,500, but like if you're a football fan, there are so many ways you could take this. You could go, if you give me the $1,500 and like, let's say I'm a Carolina Panthers fan, they like bang a huge bass drum before games. Like, yeah, $1,500 bucks plus I want to be able to bang the keep pounding drum and watch the game from the sideline. Or I want tickets for this person in my family who's a football fan or the author also suggested I want to hang out with you for a night in Paris while we're there just the ways that you could go for something like this are interesting and so it made me really think about if I'm on a flight and it's a 10-hour flight or a six-hour flight or what have you and a random person offers me money is that different than if a famous athlete who I would recognize because I'm really into sports offers me money. So what would be the difference between a random Apple CEO offering me 1500 bucks to switch seats and Anthony Davis offering me 1500 bucks to switch seats? Would I be able to think on my feet enough to go, okay, you play for this team and they're going to play my team. Can I get tickets plus that? Or will I negotiate? And so now thanks to this situation i'm absolutely prepared for if this happens but it's just interesting it's an interesting thing to think about what would you do in that situation how much money would it take for you to switch seats and does that change based on how long the flight is my guess would be yes it does are you bold enough to ask for perks and then find a way to make sure that that person follows through with said perks um which i'm not really sure how you would do like it's June. If Cam Newton says, yeah, I'm going to get you tickets and he doesn't like, there's not so much you can do besides like put him on blast on social media and hope that like people guilt him into doing it. But it's just, it's a really interesting and kind of fun thought experiment to think about if in that situation, how would you handle it? I probably would have just taken the $1,500 and not been smart enough to ask for like tickets or something like that, even though obviously that's what you should do in that situation because you have something that an athlete wants and it's a really long flight and probably kind of worth it. And it doesn't really cost them any money to give you tickets to a game or anything like that. So now that this has happened, the rest of us can be prepared for when a celebrity who we really like asks us to switch seats on a plane. The last thing I'm going to talk about today is an interesting story that I found on CNN, I believe. 
um, about this new mobile phone game that comes from the company Level X. It actually is a series of four games right now. They're working on more. But the game series is designed for doctors and medical professionals. And what it is, is there currently, like I said, are four games. And they mock medical situations that the doctors would deal with. And the game is for them to solve the problem or fix those situations. So the four games that are available, like I said, the company is called Level X. And so you'll see that through the names. The first one is Airway X, which is for anesthesiologists who are people who specialize in anesthesia before, during, and after surgery. Gastro X, which is for gastroenterologists who work with the digestive system. Pulm X for pulmonologists who work with the respiratory system. And Cardio X for cardiologists who work with the heart. And the way the game is designed is they actually have had uh, their the people that they're working with uh, who are game developers and uh, people who have MDs and biomedical engineers, uh, they've submitted different scenarios based on things that they thought about, things that they read about, and cases they've actually worked on to design the levels for the games. And they actually have over 150 physician advisors from places that include Harvard, Stanford, and Northwestern. And these people not only submit cases, but also ensure the accuracy of the results after the games have been created. So you have doctors submitting the cases to the game developers. And then after the game is developed, or and while the game is being developed, you have doctors helping the game developers determine what happens if you do this or if you do this. And the company actually employs doctors full-time to help with the game development. So there are people who could be very young or could be retired doctors who are looking for work, uh, who are working with these game developers to develop this game as expert advisors to the people who are doing the coding and the design and things like that. Um, so it's really interesting. And the way that it works is as you solve cases, the levels get a little bit harder and you actually do get a score like you would in any other game, but you're scored on things such as speed, trauma to the tissue, loss of blood, the accuracy of your procedures, and for the utmost levels, patient survival. And for the highest levels, doctors can own can earn CMEs. And what CMEs are is continuing medical education. So if you are licensed in pretty much anything in most states, you have to, in a certain time period, so for some it's every year, for others it's like every two or three years, uh, you have to do education to prove that you still know what you're doing. So when I was a pharmacy technician and I was licensed and certified, I had to do CMEs every two years. And for us, they were actually just CEs. It was just continuing education, so we didn't have the medical ones. But they would ask you pharmaceutical questions. You'd have to be up to date on new policies that have gone through and new medications that have gone through and any new procedures that people are using for processing and so on and so forth. And so all licenses, not just in the medical field, um, 
have some sort of continuing education to make sure that the people who were licensed 40 years ago still know what they're doing in the same way that with a driver's license, you eventually have to retake the test so they know that you can still drive unless you've proven it by like not getting an accident and not getting tickets and so on and so forth. So it's actually really cool that they have this. And this brings about this question of... Is this good for doctors? Because there was a question in the article that said, what happens if I'm a doctor and I'm about to do a particular procedure? I can find that procedure on the game and I do the procedure and the patient dies. A lot of people go, oh, the doctor like might be nervous now, blah, 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 blah. I view it very differently. And so did actually the person who wrote the article because... If a doctor knows they're going to go into a surgery two days before, three days before, a week before, they can go through it six or seven times trying different things and go, well, this one achieved the highest score because less blood loss. Maybe it was a little bit slower. Uh, We had a little bit more tissue trauma, but it's going to last a little bit longer. So they can go through these scenarios And they don't have to try them on an actual person. It's kind of similar to when you learn on cadavers and you get to like practice cuts and things like that. And so I think this is really, really awesome that there's another way for people who do a really important, very difficult job to practice it in a no stakes way. Because a person isn't actually dying and... Like, nothing bad is actually coming of it. And you actually also have the ability, as you do with a lot of video games, to compete with your friends and, like, compare scores and things like that. And all that's going to do is advance medicine because doctors will be able to try new things that they've been thinking about. And maybe they'll try something and it doesn't work. And they go, oh, well, I guess it doesn't work. And they're talking to another doctor about it. And they go, well, I never thought about that that procedure or that particular action but now that you say that what if you try it this way and then that is how new surgeries and new procedures and new practices are discovered through collaboration and so any way that doctors can collaborate and practice before they have to do the actual thing i think it's really awesome and i would also hope that people see this example and start to use this for other things there are ways that this can be applied where we can teach people how to be mechanics we've been using flight simulators and driving simulators for a very long time now that we can do this with medicine you can do this in things like dentistry and all kinds of other things the the space for games like this as far as learning is concerned is really unlimited and the fact that we already have over 400,000 medical professionals playing these games i think is a really good sign and if we as a society and a global tech society can continue to advance technology to not only be fun and convenient but also teachable and learnable we're definitely moving in the right direction but wait there's more hang on to your seat baby cause this one's a screamer finally got production for this last little bit and we're gonna go with but wait there's more so the last topic of today is Can we please, 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 please stop making a big deal out of 
professional and collegiate sport teams and players not visiting the White House. I think we can all agree that we have a polarizing president, regardless of what your views on him are. He's polarizing. And we as human beings don't have to like everyone. That's okay. And while going to the White House is really cool and is a great honor and is kind of a sports tradition, I as a person don't have to go just because I'm invited. And it's not really a big deal. I decided I didn't want to go. Big whoop. The reason I brought this up now is because we have another story of an athlete, Megan Rapino, who's been very outspoken in civil rights discussions and her disagreements with the current political standing in the country and so on and so forth. She's on the U.S. soccer team. Uh, we've had, she came out and said that she wasn't going to go to the White House if invited. And there was a whole article on it and multiple articles on it. And it's one of those things of where it has become so regular. Can we please just let it go? If one person wants to report, oh, okay, she doesn't want to come, cool. We don't need a five-page article on what this means. We've had so many athletes go, yeah, we're not going. Yeah, we're not going. The Toronto Raptors had to say, yeah, we're not going. Can you explain to me why the Canadian team in the basketball league won the championship and they would be invited to the American White House? While, yes, most of the players on the team are American. They still play in Canada. Kind of makes sense that they would go see Mr. Trudeau. That'd be really cool. But the point is, it's a really, really arbitrary tradition that has nothing to do with the actual sport that's being played. And it's people's right to not go. And people won't go for various reasons. They might not go because they don't like the current president. They might not go because they've been before and it's going to be the same thing. They might not go because, for whatever reason, they don't like D.C. They might not go because they straight up have no desire to go to the White House. We had a dude who didn't go to the NFL draft and instead went fishing with his dad. Like People don't have to do things just because that's, quote-unquote, what's always been done. And whatever their reason is, it doesn't really matter. Are you going or are you not going? And I understand that the president has made it a big deal. And I believe it was the Golden State Warriors last year. They all came out and said, we're not going. And he said, well, you're uninvited, which was kind of stupid because they had already said they weren't going. But whatever. The point is, when athletes decide that they don't want to go to the White House, it's not a big deal anymore. Especially at this point, we're almost four years into this. We kind of know how this is going to go. If you're a minority, and that minority I'm including women, because they are a minority for all intents and purposes, they're probably not going to want to go. We all already kind of know that. So when they tell us what we already know and say, meh, I'm not going, we don't have to make a big deal out of it. Thanks so much for listening this week, guys. Uh, going to continue to try to find new and interesting things to talk about. What I figured out that I didn't know is the summer is not only a slow news time for sports. It's also just kind of a slow news time in general. School is out. People are kind of relaxing, going on vacation. Not as much seems to be happening, but you never know. We live in a really interesting time, and things are always happening. And a slow news time means I can find stories like the Level X story, which was really cool. So 
Again, thanks for listening. Uh, If you haven't rated and reviewed and you're listening on Apple Music, please rate and review. As always, rate five stars. If you're going to rate less than five stars instead of rating, just DM me and tell me what you didn't like about it. You can follow me on Twitter at dubr1617. Follow me on Instagram at dubr16. DMs are open. Tell me what you didn't like. If you did like it, leave a review. If you're listening on Spotify, please make sure you follow. If you're listening on SoundCloud, uh, also follow. And you can leave a comment on individual episodes. So do that as well. Thanks again for listening. Later days.